As the pandemic began to take hold, the food writer Ruth Reichel had a few hunches. She didn't think half the independent restaurants in this country would survive this plague. And she was deeply worried about small farms and ranching operations. She said farmers were planting as if they were going back to the way it was before. But she thought things are going to be different. In a new documentary premiering this year at the Sundance Film Festival, Reichel describes COVID as a wake-up call, not just for the food service industry, but she says all of this abundance that Americans are used to could go away unless we fix a food system she believes is broken. In fact, she says we need to rethink everything about the system. The film is called Food and Country. We'll talk about it after this. KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. Ruth Reichel has been a restaurant critic. She was the editor at Gourmet Magazine. She's written classic books about her relationship with food. On the cover of Tender at the Bone, there is a photo of her in the kitchen at seven years old. But the truth is, Reichel's parents didn't really care about food. This is a story she tells in a documentary premiering at the Sundance Film Festival this year. Oh, her folks went out to eat when they could, and they loved it, but... They didn't go for the food. They went for the restaurants. Her mother saw it as a piece of theater. Restaurants were a chance for her to be someone else, get out of ordinary life and turn into, just for a little moment, a person of privilege. My mother was truly taste blind. My first book, opens with my mother going through the refrigerator and scraping the blue stuff off the top of everything and going, a little mold never hurt anyone, which she genuinely believed. My father was just a classic intellectual and food didn't interest him at all. But they liked being around people. They liked a moment to step out of ordinary life. And that's what restaurants represented to them. They just took me along with them all the time. So I thought of restaurants as this kind of magical place where no one was ever angry or upset. It was a calm space in a fairly chaotic life. Restaurants offer a kind of possibility. You never quite know what will happen, who you will meet, who you will see. Especially in this country, they represent the agora, the gathering place. One of the things that happened during COVID is that none of us could gather in restaurants. I think for everyone across the country, we began to understand how important that space was to us. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, Ruth Reichel is joining us to talk about her film at Sundance called Food and Country, which is this exploration of what the COVID pandemic revealed about America's relationship with food. She talked to chefs and farmers and ranchers about the food system. She talks about the history and the incentives that brought us to this point. And she calls it all a disaster moment. We were also joined by the film's director, Laura Gabbard, who made the 2015 documentary called City of Gold about the food critic Jonathan Gold. Reichel told us the idea for the film all became really clear to her in those earliest days of the pandemic. For the first time in my life, I went to the supermarket and there was nothing there. I mean, there was no food. And 
I came home and said to my husband, you know, this could be that moment that we in the food space have all been waiting for, where Americans suddenly understand how important food is. I mean, no American has ever seen an empty shelf in a supermarket before. And, you know, maybe when people are home, they'll start cooking again. They'll appreciate the people who raise the food. I said, you know, I don't know where we're going to come out on the other end. Maybe the opposite will happen. Maybe this is going to be the triumph of processed foods and everybody will, you know, long for all the processed foods that we've been eating for the past 50 years. But I think this is going to be a huge change moment. And I want to keep track of it. I want to just bear witness to what's going on because I don't know where we're going to end up on the other side, but I would like to keep a record of it. Of course, at that time, we thought we were talking about two months, maybe. We didn't think we were talking about years. Yeah. It's interesting. You also say this, and this gave me a sense of just how personal this was for you. You say in the film that in some ways you spent your whole life leading up to this project, this work you've done in this film. I do think, I mean, I started writing about food in the early 70s. I mean, I published my first cookbook in 1972. So I have been watching food change over my entire career Mm. and hoping for that change because I grew up in an America where people laughed at our food. You know, I mean, you went to Europe for great food. You, You traveled for great food. You didn't expect to find it in this country. And I saw that change happen where suddenly, you know, food in America, I mean, I actually think that um, America today is the best place in the world for food. We don't quite recognize how great our food is, that we've had this movement where we now have great cheese and great, you know, cured meats, and we raise wonderful organic vegetables of all kinds. And I mean, there's been this huge food movement. You never could have imagined that that would happen in such a short period of time that everything would change. But for me, the problem has been that it's been an elite movement. And what Mm. people like me have always wanted is for everybody in America to have access to wonderful, safe food that was healthy for them. Mm. And so this project is pretty much about that. This project is why we eat what we eat why the food in America has not been as good as it could be, why great food is not accessible to everyone, and what we can do to change that. Mm. Okay, so Laura, Ruth approaches you at some point. She has this notion, this this idea. So before we get to how we you start to create this thing, this film, I wanted to ask you about the theme of food in your own work as a filmmaker, you, you have, for those who don't know, you made City of Gold, a great portrait of the uh, the food critic Jonathan Gold. You've directed Ugly Delicious, working with David Chang. What's the connection with um, food for you, your own interest there? The reason I wanted to make a film about Jonathan is that when I first moved to Los Angeles, I dreaded moving to Los Angeles. I had lived in other cities, in Minneapolis, in San Francisco, New York, and I thought of like a lot of people, this was the early 90s, I thought of Los Angeles as sort of a cultural wasteland, which, you know, for not having spent any time here, that was pretty presumptuous. Mm. And I got to Los Angeles, I was in grad school, and I started reading Jonathan, and Jonathan's writing helped me fall in love with Los Angeles. So it was, it's about the, for City of Gold at least, it was about how someone writing about food could help me understand my city and the people who live here. And also just make me fall in love and just say, wow, this is an incredible city. There's so many amazing neighborhoods to explore. There's so many different interesting, you know, cultures here and communities. Um, So for me, it's always been sort of a connection to a place or people or community, I think. And I think food is just such a rich prism for that, for exploring all sorts of things. You know, it's a conduit. It connects people to people and people to culture, I think. You know, so for, for this project... You know, what actually happened was that I was actually talking to some people about making some kind of short film about what was happening to restaurants just in Los Angeles. And Ruth reached out to me and said, I hear we're talking about something similar. And as it turned out, she had a much 
larger and firmer grasp on what was really happening than I did <laughs> and said to me, no, it's not just about the restaurants. It's about the whole system. Like what's happening to the farmers? What's happening to the ranchers? What's happening to the fishermen? You know, so we just said, let's let's just join forces. Let's just see what happens. We had no idea what would happen and we couldn't travel and we couldn't really film yet. You know, we just sort of said, well, let's have Ruth just start reaching out to the people she knows because she knows so many people. Mm. We started recording the Zoom calls really for research and development, not to be in the film because we thought, well, maybe we'll be able to travel in three weeks, right? Like, <laughs> and, and Ruth also really wanted to keep a record, right? So that was a huge other part of it. She personally wanted to keep a record. But what we found in recording these Zoom calls, my team and I and Ruth would all, you know, she would do the Zoom call. We would all watch them during the week, and then we would gather twice a week on Zoom to talk about them. And what we sort of discovered was that there was this intimacy and spontaneity in the Zoom calls. <laughs> so liberated from that traditional, you know, documentary style, camera shot, you know, where you're asking people questions and you're waiting for the sound guy to get set up. It was just a conversation. And even though they knew they were being recorded, there was just an honesty and you, you, and you were very much in the moment too, right? Like when you travel to visit subjects yeah. to, to film interviews, they're thinking about the interview, you're thinking about it. You might interview mm -hmm. them two, two or three times. Ruth was talking to these people every few weeks. And so we would get kind of moment to moment developments in their life and how the pandemic was impacting them. We just thought we can use these in the film. This can be part of the storytelling. We for sure want to go film with people when we can. But it just, I think it gives the film a texture of the time, too. And yeah. then also just Ruth brought her, like, great, you know, reporting to the fore and her warmth and curiosity. And so they were just great conversations. What, what were the questions, Ruth, that you found yourself asking all of the time? What, like, what did you want to get at? Because it seems you wanted to go beyond just hearing, gosh, how how bad is it or how good is it? I mean, you, it seems like you wanted to get at some really essential questions here. Like, what were you asking? Well, you know, what happened in the course of this is my husband describes it as I went to graduate school in food. <laughs> and what I discovered was that all these things that these kind of easy truths that I believed weren't right. I mean, you know, I've been going out and saying to people, you know, for, you know, 50 years, you know, the great thing about food is if you don't like it, you can change it. Mm. We vote with our dollars and you mm. can really make a difference. And what I found out is that that's nonsense. What drives all the decisions about food? I mean, is the government. The more I researched this, the more fascinated I became by the farmers, the people who have seen the film. I mean, the one thing that people say to me over and over and over again, is I had no idea that farmers were so smart. Um, you know, you think of farmers as somewhat people who just, you know, you know, plow the old way. I mean, these people are, they're marketers, they're businessmen, they're scientists, and only 7% of the farmers in America actually make a living by farming. Most of them have to do something else. And so I, as time went on, I really wanted to know about their lives, about why they were doing it, whether they wanted their children to do it, how the conditions had changed. And I just became, you know, increasingly fascinated and in love with these people. And, I'm, you know, so part of it is, you know, I'm talking to farmers all over the country. Hmm. And um, there's, there's a certain through line for all of them that they love what they do. And as this wonderful rancher that who I'm so, I'm so excited because I'm going to meet him in person for the first time. Are we talking Steve Stratford? Um, we're talking Steve Stratford, who yeah. um, I absolutely fell in love with and everybody falls in love with. You know, this <laughs> yeah. is a man who, who I mean, he actually said to me one day, you know, every year I go to the bank and I beg for an operating $8 million operating loan to keep my business mm -hmm. going. I come home, I work three jobs, I work a hundred hours a week. And in a good year, I take home $50,000. Yeah. And he said, do I want my kids to do this? No, why, you know, no sane person would do that. But these people will do it because 
they believe in what they're doing. They love their animals. They love the idea of ranching and farming and so forth. And we were all the beneficiaries of that. But, you know, so my, my questions started really, you know, I started going to policy people and saying, like, you know, why is it like this? Let's talk about one element that sort of explains all of this and you sort of go into the sort of history of this. How, as Ruth explains it, after World War II, food becomes political. Laura, say something about this and, and, and Ruth, you, you too, of course. This, this, part, this idea, that this history part of it. Well, I'll let, I, mean, I think Ruth is more of the, the expert on that, but I will, I will say that we felt that it was an important sort of section of the film just to give people context. I think people don't know much about how the current system became, came to be, how we went from farming with animals to farming with huge machinery, and what were the forces behind that. And it turns out they were largely political. Coming out of World War II, there was a very conscious decision on the part of the American government to make food political. They had a huge stockpile of ammunition left over from World War II. They decide to convert it into fertilizer. There is a deep encouragement to replace the animals on the farm with machines. There's privileging of efficiency, the factory model. And there is a whole notion that one way we can fight communism is by having the cheapest and most abundant food on earth. That has been American policy since the end of World War II. And it is pretty much responsible for everything that's happened, everything that's happened to farmers, the hollowing out of rural America, the fact that we now have, you know, very cheap food that is not very healthy, that, you know, six in 10 Americans have chronic diseases, which are largely food based. I mean, our food, we do have the cheapest food in the world. If you actually factored in the costs of that cheap food to our health, our communities, um, our farmers, it becomes very expensive. But you know, we as consumers, I mean, everybody's complaining about high food costs right now, and they do seem high. But um, if you talk about what it really costs to raise food, I mean, we, we, need, we need to completely change who we subsidize, what we subsidize. I mean, the government spends $50 billion a year subsidizing farmers. And, you know, if we changed how we spent that money, we could change the food system. But it's political. I'd like to think that how we as consumers spend our money would make a big difference. But, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. You know, you going out and buying organic food, it's not going to change the food system. And also, I, I, I always thought it was so interesting, and I don't think it's in the film, but Ricardo Salvador from the Union of Concerned Scientists said to Ruth, you know, people like to talk about kind of the unintended consequences of this you know, agriculture system, industrial agriculture system. And he's like, no, they're not unintended consequences. It was intentional. <laughs> I mean, there's a ripple effect to it all, of course, that maybe no one could imagine, but it was intentional. A lot of it, too, was to make sure the money went to the big companies, you know. And I, I just always, that always really struck me because people, people talk about it as this almost like an accident that happened, and it's really not. Well, it is in the film, actually, Laura. That Salvador does say in the film that this was a conscious decision to favor agribusiness as opposed to people who live off of the land. And that seems to be the sort of the, the crux of it all is that we had this rich culture of farmers up until this point and we made this conscious decision to go in another direction. That seems like a huge cultural shift that had amazing consequences. It is a huge, and it happened really fast. I mean, if you look at what America was like going into the war and what it was like in 1961, it's like going into the war, people still farmed with animals. And by, you know, 1961, very few farms still used animals. It was all big machines. And, you know, for me, one of, one of the most poignant stories in the film, and there are a lot of them, 
And there's a, there's a lot of hope in the film too, because we talk to farmers who have actually figured out how to make yeah. farming in America work. But one of the families are the Joneses in Huron, Ohio. And in the, you know, the big farm crisis of 1982, they lost everything, everything. I mean, they stood on their land and watched every single thing they own get auctioned off. Their house, their cars, every, their land, their machine, everything is gone. And they start again and they start smarter. And they use this COVID crisis to, even though they, they, they had built this huge business back um, and they're wonderful people. I mean, they're people who make you proud to be American. You know, I mean, they, um, they're, they're so decent and good to their workers um, and, you know, understand how important their workers are to them. Um, but they use the COVID crisis to change their ways once again to become even more resilient. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things I love about this film is that so many of these people use that moment to say, okay, we thought we were good, but now we can see that we had made this mistake or that mistake, and now we're going to change and do it better. Ruth Reichel. Her film is Food and Country. It's screening in the premiere section of this year's Sundance Film Festival. Also with us is Laura Gabbard. She's the film's director. The film will premiere next Monday evening at the Park Avenue Theater in Park City with additional screenings throughout the week. You can get details on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Keep your KUER membership up to date with My KUER. It's an online portal for you to manage all aspects of your support. Update payment or contact information, increase your monthly donation, or just pitch in a little extra. You can view past donations, print a tax receipt, and reach out to us about your account by sending us a message. Log in or create an account today at KUER.org slash MyKUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about one of the documentaries at the Sundance Film Festival, which opened last night in Park City. It's a personal film that features the food writer Ruth Reichel, who saw the COVID pandemic as a disaster moment for the food system. It exposed all of these systemic problems. Being trapped in the early days of the pandemic, she reached out by Zoom to chefs and farmers and ranchers to figure out how to rebuild our relationship with food from the ground up. The film is called Food and Country. Ruth Reichel is joining us along with the director, Laura Gabbard. Let's talk about another theme that comes up in the film. You, and Ruth, you mentioned this statistic I wanted to ask you about, which is kind of striking, how in, I think it was 1920, 19% of farms were black-owned, and now it's maybe 1%. Talk a little bit about this part of the film and tell us about Karen um, Washington, um, where we have to look at this system of who's growing food. And she says you, you can't talk about a sustainable, equitable system without talking about this part. Yeah, you can't – if we're not part of it, it's not sustainable. Um, and again, I got to Karen Washington through a shot. Yeah. And I was talking to Marcus Samuelson mm -hmm. and he said, you know, do you know Karen Washington? And I said, no. And he said, you know, you've got to meet her. So I called her up and this is how the film went. You know, one person would say, you should talk to so-and-so. And I feel really yeah. sorry for Laura because I kept going down <laughs> rabbit holes. You know, Oh, I got to, I got to talk to this person. So, I mean, I literally have hundreds of hours of Zooms, but I call up Karen Washington and she has been, she is this um, fierce, smart black woman who has been on the front line of food justice and uh, urban farming for 35 years. 
Mm -hmm. Um, and she, you know, moved to the Bronx, ended up with a yard and thought, I'm going to try farming. And she has this moment where she says, you know, I didn't know that tomatoes were red. I didn't know that they were delicious. I grew these tomatoes and I thought, never eaten anything. And, you know, she is very much an advocate for uh, black farmers. And, you know, which, which, the statistic in New York State is there like, what, 159,000 farmers in New York and 19 of them are black. I mean, it, mm. it's crazy. And that, again, has been, you know, it's it, black farmers have been very, very seriously disenfranchised since the 20s. But as one of our Eric Diebel, who's an agriculture policy guy, says, you know, most of this has happened, you know, it did most of it didn't happen in the 20s. Most of it is fairly recent. And one of the things that we really need to do is make sure that black people can continue to farm. And of course, there was, you know, when the Biden administration came in, there was a whole movement to you know, make sure that black farmers were helped. And, you know, that went through the courts and was knocked down. Well, it was fought by um, a lot of white farmers, yeah. right? Of course. Yeah. And, and bankers. And bankers, yeah. And I think the, US, the USDA, USDA was, you know, complicit in, in all of this, you know, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. I mean, they systematically just did not renew black farmers' loans, and they would renew the white farmers' loans. So whether it was stated policy or not, it happened. And, and it, it is heartbreaking when you actually go into this and you start reading about what happened is systematically, you know, very successful black farmers are denied operating loans. And almost every farmer goes to the bank every year to ask for an operating loan. And if you can't get it, you can't farm. There's uh, um, another part. Uh, this sort of leads to this other part of the film that I wanted to ask you that I don't think occurs to many of us, how we've ended up with workers in in restaurants and and working, you know, um, farm workers, for example. But in, in, in restaurants in particular, workers who rely on tips, the, the U.S. tipped worker minimum wage is something like, you know, $2.13 an hour. And you talk to this great attorney and fair wage activist, Saro Jayaraman, and she takes us through this history of the, of the tip. After emancipation, employers first demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything and have them live entirely on this new notion that had just come from Europe at the time called a tip. And it really was slavery that mutated this idea of tipping not as a bonus or an extra on top of a wage, but rather the wage itself, because there was a desire to hire Black people, in particular black women, actually at the time, not pay them anything and have them live on tips. As we made the film and showed it to people, that was one thing that shocked people. People don't know this, right? And so many people just tell me, like, that's what one of the things that really struck them about the film. I mean, as we saw during the pandemic, there were so many restaurant workers out there who couldn't get benefits, couldn't get unemployment, right? And that is because of, you know, this U.S. tips minimum wage. They rely on their tips to make money. It puts a lot of workers, especially female workers, in a vulnerable position. I just think it's, you know, it's one of these things about our history that people don't really know. So we go into restaurants and we don't even really think about that, right? It's just, I mean, it is the only industry in America where the patrons are actually asked to pay the workers rather than the owners. I mean, when you think about that, there's something really wrong with that notion that the owners aren't paying the workers, you are. And most urban restaurant goers, you know, think of the huge tips they're leaving people and think they, they don't understand that most of the tipped workers in America are, first of all, most of them are women, um, they're single mothers. They're people who have, you know, three jobs. They're making $2.13 an hour, relying on 
the generosity of the people that they're serving. It's just, it's, it's a truly, I mean, if you look at the history and it, it, it comes straight out of the South, it comes straight out of reconstruction, you know, this idea, oh, you know, the, the servers are all going to be black people. So let's not give them any money. They'll do, they can just rely on those tips. One of, one of the other things about this film, which this feeds into a little bit, is a lot of this film talks about women and women, how women are exploited by various systems. And a large percentage of the tipped workers are women. One of the things about the farmers is that um, one of the policy people I spoke with said, you know, who's going to change farms are women. It's the wives. And that's why we decided to go out and try and find a woman farmer who was changing things. And, you know, one of my favorite people in the film is Angela Knuth, who is a Nebraska farm woman yeah. who persuades her husband and two boys who she farms with to try and go organic. And in the course of the film, we watch this happen. We watch their resistance. We watch her triumph, which is kind of wonderful. They, first, they're certified organic. And then suddenly, they're making a lot more money mm. because you get more money for organics. You know what's great about this moment in the film or this part of the film is Angela and her husband, Carrie Knuth, um, she really has to talk him into it, into going organic because he is all about the yield numbers. He's not really sure about it. But she stays the course and in the end, they make this really difficult transition. You talk about what the transition is like because it's kind of brutal and it's kind of scary and it's kind of risky. But she really stands her ground and it's a great part of the film, I have to say. You know, so what's interesting to me about Angela's story in the context of the film is that her motivation for going organic is economic, right? Largely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, to yeah. me, it tells me that we can come together on these issues, that even if you're not, if you're not concerned about climate change and all these other things and soil health, um, there's a way to talk about these issues that help everybody, that would make, you know, farming more sustainable. And I, I kind of, I love that, you know, compared to someone like a Will Harris, who's been regenerative since the 90s, right? And then I think she does learn to care about soil health. I think she finds it really exciting and really rewarding, too. And she starts to really understand, oh, wait, actually, this just makes so much more sense. It's like a practical decision. Laura Gabbard, she's director of the documentary film Food and Country. Also with us, the food writer Ruth Reichel. The film will premiere next Monday evening at the Park Avenue Theater in Park City. You can find details on our website, RadioWest.org. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. a dependable, trustworthy news source, that's our goal at KUER. In order to meet that goal, we depend on listener contributions. Your support ensures the local and national news heard on KUER remains independent, commercial-free, and accessible for all. If you rely on our programming to stay informed, become our newest sustainer with a gift of just $5 a month. Start your monthly support at KUER.org slash donate. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're profiling one of the films premiering at Sundance this year. In a new documentary, the food writer Ruth Reichel describes COVID as a wake-up call for the country's food system. She talks to chefs and farmers and ranchers about how to rebuild from the ground up this system. The film is called Food and Country. Reichel joined us along with the film's director, Laura Gabbard. Let's talk about restaurants. Um, come back to that 
theme in the in the film. Uh, Ruth, you say early on, this is as as everything's starting to unfold, that you would be surprised if more than half of the restaurants, the the independent restaurants, would be able to survive this this pandemic. So let's talk about this. There's this really great conversation I want to ask you about that you have with uh, uh, Min Fan, chef owner of Porridge and Puffs in L.A. Um, and in some ways, like you're playing this really – she says as much that you sort of, Ruth, play the kind of mentor role to her. And you're having this conversation where she's telling you about this talk she has with her staff. Like I'm not sure, guys, we're going to – make this um, and the only way to make this work maybe is, is as opposed to you know having this restaurant where we have affordable food maybe we go to fine dining maybe we have to raise the prices and she you know talks about how we live in this culture that expects cheap food and maybe we should go to fine dining will you just talk a little bit about this moment in the film because it's a it's a real moment where she's really wondering what she's supposed to do I talked to my team and I said, this isn't working and we're not going to survive. And that's the first time I felt that ever. I think I've been in the system so long where I just have to be like, you have to be humble. You have to just do work twice as hard and charge half as much because you're a woman and you're an immigrant. And they're just like, oh my God, we've all worked in fine dining. You would charge $40 for this. And we need to because you're not being fair to us. You expect us to work all the stations, do all the things, and then you charge $13? Like, come on. And I think it's a culture where people really don't want to pay a lot for food. And I just said to her, you have incredibly high standards. You are doing fine dining, and I think you should be charging for it. You know, you're using really good ingredients, using the best ingredients you can find. You've got incredibly trained people working for you. They're all, you know, out of fine dining kitchens. Your food is really complicated. Why are you selling it for $11? That doesn't make sense to me. And if you want to do fine dining, just, you know, throw your heart over the fence and do fine dining. You know, I mean, remember, we're all locked up. We're having these conversations, you know, from across the country. None of us is really talking to people, you know, so people are sort of opening their hearts to me. And, you know, I mean, you know, people cry on camera. Four people said in the course of this, you know, you're like my my shrink. You're the only person I can talk to outside of the people, you know, I'm locked up with. So I'm telling you, you know, what's going on in my head, which was what was so great about doing this film is I forged these really intimate relations with people but, you know, I didn't really expect men to go and do what I said. And then she did. She opens a fine dining restaurant. And then she becomes the restaurant of the year. <laughs> yeah. Matt, it, it, one thing that came from this section in the film was you talked to Nick Kokonis, the restaurateur and executive, who says, if you're a restaurant owner um, – an independent. Like you can't be defensive. You can't wait for the cavalry to come. You have to learn to scale up. Talk a little bit about what independent restaurants were doing and learning to make all of this work. I think for me, one of the great things uh, that came out of this is, you know, we all know that farmers are resilient. They have to be. You know, they never know what weather is coming down the pike for them. But you don't think about restaurateurs as being really resilient. And the people who survived, and there were, God knows there were a lot more than I expected, but they were people who figured out how to make it work. I mean, they cared about their staff. They wanted to keep them working. A lot of the, you know, really high-end guys really worried about the farmers. I mean, you know, Dan Barber said to me, look, uh, you know, I've insisted that all these people only sell to me. And now I have to keep them going. So, you know, I am going to make sure that I'm using their produce, that I'm, you know, paying them what I would be paying them. And I have to figure out a way to, you know, make boxes that I'll sell to people. I mean, Alice Waters, the same thing. You know, she had had promised certain farmers that she would buy everything they 
they produced. And so, you know, they sold produce. I mean, they, they turned into stores, but a lot of these chefs figured out ways to deliver to people. But, you know, of all of them, I mean, Nick, Nick Kakonis, who, you know, is, uh, his partner is Grant Ackett's at Alinea mm. in Chicago. I mean, he was so prescient. He saw in March when all of us thought this was going to be over long before Thanksgiving, he said, there are not going to be any big Thanksgiving gatherings this year. I'm going to find a farmer who will raise small turkeys and we're going to, we're going to send Thanksgiving dinner home to families. And he did that in March. He, he contracted for 12 pound turkeys. Mm. The restaurateurs started like being able to look around corners to understand what the future was going to be like and to plan for it. And I am in awe of their what they did, not only to survive themselves, but to make sure that their people survived, to make sure that their suppliers uh, survived. It was an extraordinary moment for restaurants of coming together. You know, people who had been competitive suddenly were working together. I mean, it was like, we have to figure out how, when this is finally over, we're all still here. And most of them are. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. You talked to Reem Asil, the chef at Reem's, you know, um, and she talks about how restaurants are these, you know, she talks about them as these third spaces, that it's more than just a, a transaction when you go to a restaurant. And she says something really intriguing I wanted to ask you both about. She says that that people in restaurants are having to reimagine what true hospitality is really like. What was she getting at there? Well, I think for her, I mean, her whole restaurant has been about making people, I mean, making people understand Arab hospitality. I mean, that, yeah. that is her mission in life. Right. But I think in this moment, she was so focused on her staff and so focused on the notion of hospitality being not just what goes out to your customers, but also what goes out to your staff and hmm. how the customers, that she as an owner had a responsibility to her staff and that that was hospitality. And also that the customers had a responsibility to the staff, which is in, you know, in all the years that I've been writing about restaurants, this was, I think, the first time that that notion of, yes, hospitality goes out to you, our customers, but this is a two-way street. Hmm. And you you need to be hospitable to us as well. You know, if you want to come into our space, you're in our home, and we have expectations of you as well. And um, I think that's still out there in the ether and something that Americans as restaurant goers are going to have to embrace. This goes both ways. Yeah. We, we need to say something about the Harrises. Will Harris at White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. He's an, is an important part of the story. He's a great character. He, his father industrialized the for, farm and then became disillusioned with that idea and Will, you know, transitions it, changes it. For me, the first canary in the coal mine was animal welfare. Really, it's incumbent upon me as the herdsman to give the animals the opportunity to express instinctive behavior. And you can't do that in the confinement model. These cattle out here walking and grazing is instinctive behavior. Those chickens right there scratching and pecking is instinctive behavior. They're hogs in those, that swamp over there that's rooting and wallowing. That's instinctive behavior. You know, over a 20-year period, the organic modern our soil has gone from about a half a percent to 5%. And by the way, all that carbon came from greenhouse gases that used to be up there that got through photosynthesis and microbial activity got, and animal activity got marooned in the soil. I saw my land go from a dead mineral medium to a 
an organic medium that's teeming with life. And everything is tied to everything else. I don't think of this farm as a factory. I think of it as an organism. He's got a great voice. He's got a great face. His family's terrific. Say something about the part he plays in the film. I mean, I guess what I would say about Will is he's he's an example of not that the pandemic didn't impact them. It did. I mean, their online sales went way up, but they were they were poised because they had been doing things differently for a long time. You know, they're basically a vertically integrated sort of business and that they do everything there on the farm. They, you know, raise the animals, they slaughter the animals, they they turn they use every part of the animal and figure out how to sell it they market it he was poised to do quite well during the pandemic because he had made these huge decisions and took huge financial risk years before i think ruth you were interested in talking to him correct me if i'm wrong but just seeing like you you said to him this is so great what you're doing how can other people do this Listen, I, I am in love with Will Harris, as is, I think, <laughs> everybody else who meets him. He is one of the most inspirational people I've ever encountered in my life. He's like a preacher of the land. He is in the poorest county in the poorest state, in one of the poorest states in the country. It was a dead town, and he has brought it back to life in every way. He, you know, took dying land and it's teeming with life now. Every time he opens his mouth, he's, he says something profound. <laughs> he's made his farm a welcoming place for all kinds of diverse people um, in the middle of, you know, bedrock south. He he's amazing, and he's also made it possible for his um, lesbian daughter, who thought she could never live in that little town because she was so uncomfortable being closeted growing up. Mm. He's made a place where she can have a family and farm with him, which, as she said, she never in a million years expected. I mean, he is he's just an extraordinary person. I mean, he's the person all of us want to be when we grow up. You, um, you ask this question in the film, what if we had made a different decision after the war in, you know, 1948? What if rather than uh, privileging efficiency or getting big and creating more and more profit, what if we had privileged nutrition? That's a, the big what if there. And I know it's weird to talk about a counterfactual, but what, what do you think would have been different. I mean, what if we had done that? Can you imagine what the system would would be like if we had thought differently? First, first of all, we would have such a healthier America, such a smarter America, and we would still have a rural America. I mean, rural America has been literally hollowed out by these policies. I think everything in this country would be the politics would be different. We, we would be able to feed ourselves. I mean, one of the other things that comes out of this film is, you know, we can't feed ourselves. We don't raise food in this country. We raise commodities. And in a crisis, there are few communities in this country that can feed themselves, but very few. I think that in America that had said we really want to raise healthy food, make sure it's available to everyone, would be a profoundly different country than the country that we now live in. In what direction do you think we're headed, though? Because when you talk about regenerative farming, when you talk about more worker um, owner ownership in these restaurants, for example, when you rethink tipping, are we, are we changing or are the incentives just too strong right now to really change on a scale that would – that would make a difference? I am personally very skeptical about the immediate future and very positive about the long future. I really count on this you know, young generation of people who really understand that food is important, that it's profound, and that how we feed ourselves 
really matters. And I depend on them to make the kind of changes we need to make. Laura, what do you think? I, I, I tend to agree with Ruth. I think that it's so easy to get kind of caught up in some of, because we have a lot of people who are doing amazing and innovative work in this film, but I think it's a industrialized agriculture and the industrialized food system is a huge ship to turn around. I too think there's, there's more interest about it. I think that COVID was a wake up call. I hope we don't forget about that. Hmm. And I think there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of good work out there. And I agree with Ruth that it, it's not just about consumers making different choices. It has to really come from policy, like really radical policy changing. Final question for both of you. Of course, no one would say this pandemic was a good thing. So many lives lost and livelihoods. But I guess is this part of some kind of silver lining in the story that something so devastating actually, you know, revealed these problems underneath that may not have come to the surface if not for this? Yeah, COVID was awful and tragic. But I think many good things came out of it for and, and that's one of the things about this film is like these these are the stories we ended up focusing on really are the people who took this time and made it better at the end than it had been at the beginning. And you know, I think that there are a lot of people in this country for whom that's true. I think it all it made us all, including our characters in the film, kind of ask those deeper questions, right? About what's important and what we value. Many people feel that they took stock and reevaluated, and hopefully our country can do that in the space. Laura Gabbert, Ruth Reichel, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. This has really been fun. Yeah, great questions. It's Laura Gabbert, along with Ruth Reichel. Their film is Food and Country. It's screening in the premiere section of this year's Sundance Film Festival. It will premiere next Monday evening in Park City. We have links to all of that on our website, RadioWest.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. Our producers are Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 